Kitov. Today's daf is Mem Dalit, and we pick up with the next Mishnah. And we are still in the middle of a discussion about slaves. It is so interesting how this becomes a major focus of the Tikkun Olam Takanot of Gitin. Um, so, and, you know, one can also not help uh, thinking about the uh, comparisons that are going on all the time, not even implicit, explicit, that we learn the star shikhra of a slave, the freeing of a slave, from a gzair shav of la-la to an isha, to a woman, and how a writ there frees a woman and divorces a woman, and it's used for a slave, and there's issues of personal status, and in the way, you know, that could sort of be seen as a, you know, obviously as a very negative comparison, the woman that's sort of like property of the husband, or being, you know, free, but actually, the Gemara multiple times uses the comparison to also make a contrast, and actually uses the comparison to say that by the that by the woman there's only the aspect of isura of personal status whereas by the slave there are two aspects going on isura and mamona personal status and property ownership and actually a lot of the fascinating sugyot that we've done are exactly around exploring the idea of what happens when you change one of those statuses without the other when the when the master sort of you know um, um, renounces monetary ownership is mafkir a slave or another doesn't own him monetarily but still has not yet changed his personal status so actually the Gemara is, both, is, is, is not only making a comparison but it's, there's a lot of making a particular contrast and exploring this other dimension which particularly exists by slave of Mamona which Gemara very consistently says you know, is not at all the case by the case of, of the woman so it's actually again fascinating this is both Tikkun Olam and it's also very relevant to the whole Gitin conversation the freeing of slaves so now we pick up with submission in the middle of Lem Gimel Amud Bet and saying the following um, if somebody sells a slave to a non-Jew or outside of Israel the slave is free, goes free now he has to be freed you know by the master but basically we mandate before you know there was a language about Kofa Esrabo you force the fat master to free him here it just says he goes free sounds a little automatic but we'll see about that in the Gemara um, that basically we obviously require the master to do an act of freeing him and for both of the reasons it's because a slave is partly obligated in its vote the obligation is you know equal to that of a woman la la again the Gezer Shava teaches us both the writing of this writ and also the level of obligation um, and therefore if he's in the t- owned by a non-Jew it's clearly a tremendous amount of violation the non-Jew is going to want him to work on Shabbos and Yantav you know and probably might uh, only make available to him non-kosher food all these types of things Chutzlart is less of a concern um, you know although he does make him lose the mitzvahs that apply in Eretz Israel. And interestingly, if you think about the uh, husband-wife comparison, you know, there's all these discussions about if the husband wants to move to Chutz La'aretz, you know, can the wife basically sue for divorce? You can't be forced to, make, to be made to move to Chutz La'aretz. But the other issue also has to do with the fact that Chazal very much did not want, you know, things that uh, really wanted to make takanot that established the Jewish presence in the land of Israel. Um, and therefore did not want uh, the Jews in Israel selling property or slaves or cattle to the non-Jews because all of those were things that really have to do with like an established presence in the land. So that might also be somewhat of a relevant factor but again that's more of a concern of selling uh, but, but, certain, but, but uh, the most obvious concern here is the sort of mitzvot concern which is profound by the case of selling to a non-Jew 
um, and exists somewhat in this case of selling to Chutzlar. Yeah, yes. These are also, um, so they're ostensibly on the pathway towards becoming Jewish. No, no. because if you're not supposed to free your Evid Kanani, then this is a permanent status. So they're going to remain at this, at this level of obligation. So I don't, wouldn't say that. But look, they're fully obligated in all the Lotases and all the Mitzvahses, She'en Azman Grama. So, you know, they have, what it's often conceived as like partial Kedusha Israel, you know, or Kedusha Israel that's not fully manifest, you know, raises again, un, you know, challenging questions because it's the same level of obligation as women and we don't want to say and we want to say women have partial Kedusha Israel, you know, but whatever, but um, but he, it's not just the level of mitzvahs that reflect the fact that they're not fully Jewish. They're slaves and obviously that, that's a personal status issue so that they're not fully Jewish. So that every Evid Kanani is in the process of something. No, pure. no, it's the opposite, meaning what turns him into an Evid Kanani of Chayv and Mitzvos is when you take possession of him, you basically do a meal and you force him into the mikvah, you know, whether he wants it or not. It's a type of a forced convert, quasi-conversion, okay? But, and then he becomes disobligated in these mitzvot except for the time-bound ones, okay? But that's how it's going to remain unless you free him, and the assumption is you're not going to free him, all right? Um, so now let's take a look. Um, but again, what this Mishnah also very much brings out is that this person is not just property. He's a person. He's obligated in mitzvot. You know, he's, some, he's somewhat of, connect, uh, like, of a... Of a uh, a quasi co-religionist and you have these responsibilities to this person okay so sexually abused by um, pagans I don't know that's an interesting question that comes up in Avodah Zara about being alone with uh, pagans mm-hmm. you know but I don't see that as having been raised but it's an interesting thought okay let's take a look at the Gemara Tanu Rabbanan so the right makes it clear it's not automatic the, you know you still need the right act to be done to free him the master he requires a writ of freedom from the master from his first master obviously because the second master is a non-Jew and cannot change his status you know his halachic status when is this true when you don't the document isn't written if you write for him his document that's his uh, freedom my own what is this document? Amr of Sheshis, to cost of lay, when you write to the slave before he leaves, if you ever manage to run away and get away from this uh, non Jew, I'm selling it to you, selling you to whom I'm selling you, then I make no claim to you. And that, writing that down, now that sounds more like a lesson of Hefker than a lesson of Shichur, right? But again, when it's in a writ, when it's written down, I, 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 I renounce all ownership of you, right? And it's, you know, when it's given to the slave, then that can serve as his star shikhur, which will take effect. Tosa says it can't take effect now, because if it takes effect now, then he's a free person, and how is he being sold to this uh, non-Jew? It's not like it's a star shikhur that's going to take effect when that condition is met. Okay, and then it'll take effect. But again, thinking about this issue, right, about how the star by a slave works more about his status than about property ownership, if I just say, I mafkir you, I still need to give him a star to free him. But if I actually give him a star, does the star say, Ben Chorin, right? You know the, that type of a thing, or is it enough for the star to say, you know, it sounds like it's enough for it to say, like I renounce ownership. So even the star, the language of the star could more articulate the property aspect, but because it's being done through this ritual, through this act of giving a star, that is all that affects the change of status. All right. So now we get on to the next one. Yes. Yeah, because Tosus deals with the problem. How can you? How can your freeing of the slave take effect once he's out of your control? And Tosus, and so right. So I, I, I 
I bracketed that and Tosus' answer is based on the earlier Gemara that says Lohain Konim Mikem that basically and Lohain Konim lo, you know Lohain Konim Zemizeh that, non, that, that the only person who can own a slave <laughs> as property is a Jew can own a non-Jewish slave but non-Jews can't own non-Jews etc. so they only owe, own him for Masayadayim so you're still the owner of his, of his person of him as fully as property to be in a position to free him even after he's in the hands of the non-Jew so you're yes. only selling his uh, you're only selling his work right. he owns him for his work but he, his body is still owned by you and therefore you remain in the, in the you know in the, in the uh, role and the status to be able to free him yes Jenna I, just, like, I read the Mishnah and it, you know, it sounds to me like it's saying you can't sell your slave to Odekhofim and if you do he's not even a slave anymore he goes automatic Right. The Mishnah so, then the Gemara seems to be coming in and making like, oh, this is how you do it. Right. Well, that's exactly correct. The Mishnah sounds Yitzah ben Chorin sounds like it's automatic. Whereas in the previous Mishnah it says it says Kofin et Rabo, right? Right. So it does sound automatic. And you know, maybe Chazal have that ability. Although, of course, if it, he needs a writ and it's not enough to change the money ownership over him, it's not clear how they would do that. You know, even if they're mafkir the slave, how do how do you change the status? The status issue does need this writ of this this writ. So while the Mishnah, yes, does sound like it's automatic, the Brita qualifies that, and the Gemara is going with the Brita. It sound like it's a thing that people did, rather than the point of the Mishnah seems to be saying, don't do it, and then the way the Gemara comes in and says it, it's like, okay, when people sell their slaves... How is it different? Well, the Mishnah says, if somebody sells his slave, he goes free. Right. And the Bible says if somebody sells a slave, he has to be given a writ of the, uh, uh, he has to be given a writ of manumission. Right, and then like we're going to give you the writ, and then saying oh, you mean because it just describes a type of a language that is used reflects the reality that this was a common occurrence. Right, right that's an interesting point. Right. Well, look, you know, like sorry, the Freud said in a different context, you don't have to legislate things that people aren't doing anyway. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> okay. So anyway, all right, Tanu Rabbanan. Did you get that reference there, Seth? Okay. Tanu Rabbanan, are you impressed? Tanu Rabbanan. Lava alav mina ove kochavim, kivan sha'asalo ove kochavim, ni muso yatsalacherut. Now, let's say you actually, the non you borrowed money from the non Jew. And the, it was specifically, the free key phrase here is alav. You borrowed money and put the slave up as collateral. Against, you. against yeah. the slave, right? It's like a mortgage. Okay? And therefore, this now, at what time? So that's like selling. The Gemara is going to say, if you just later, if you just borrowed money, Stam, and the Naju could have collected from any of your property and chose to collect from your slave, you didn't willingly sell your slave. That was the Naju's choice. Thank you so much. But here, you actually specifically set your Naju up, your slave up as collateral. So if he gets taken by the Naju, it's like you sold him, you chose to put him up. At what stage is he considered to have been sold to the non-Jew that now he has to be freed? Okay, so you borrowed against him from the non-Jew. Once the non-Jew does for him his his law, his nimus, right? Nomos, right? Does the does the does the law by him? We'll see what that means. He goes free. Again, that language sounds like it's automatic, even though as we've been saying, it's not automatic. My nimus. what does this mean? What stage are we referring to? So, Amar Bar Yehuda, Nashki, which is not so helpful for us. Razi says Nashki means some type of a seal that is put on the slave, maybe, maybe actually, I don't know, maybe actually a tattoo, maybe, a, maybe some type of a thing that the slave wears that shows that he's being taken, to, that he's owned by the non-Jew. You know, shows whose uh, who slave he is. 
Okay, so once he does that, he puts a seal on the slave, then he, it's, it's like he's been sold to him, and he goes free. Uh, you have to free him. So the Gemara says, one minute. That can't be what Nimuso means. He wrote, the sharecroppers and the renters of, of, of property, of fields, the Arisi Bateavot, even these, uh, these, famil- these familial sharecroppers, people who have been sharecropping on the land for generations, right? I mean, we know that that happened. Generations of gen- after generations, you know, have been sharecroppers on a certain piece of property. In all those cases, the Ode, that you're doing this, you are sharecropping on this land of a non-Jew. So the non-Jew owns its land in Eretz Yisrael. You've been, you and your family have been sharecropping on this for like five generations. Is it still considered the non-Jew's land and exempt from Trumas and Maestros? That's the question. Okay, and the answer is yes. Even if you've been on it for generations, it's his land and it's still exempt. Or, let's say, you lent, you lent money to the non-Jew and you now have taken it in collateral. Okay? You've taken it as a surety. Um, in all those cases, but you, in all those cases you don't own it. You might be on it and using it and so on and have some rights, but you don't own it. So, although you did the nimus, presumably by this case of the loan and the mashkon, um, it remains exempt from maser. So what is this nimus? If it's a thing of putting a seal on a slave, so you don't put a seal on a seal. So obviously the word nimus has to mean something else. It's relevant to taking possession of a slave when the, for the loan and taking possession of the field or some type of degree of taking possession. So El Amar Zman. Okay, nimuso means the time is up. Okay, I don't know how that will come through the word nimos, which again means like law, but like somehow it's it's come it's come to you know the, the, it's come to fruition. You lent the money, and it's come to you know, and, and and the time has arrived. So therefore, the time to collect the loan has arrived. So then it would read that once the time to collect the loan has arrived, and you haven't paid the non-Jew, so now he's in a position that he can seize the slave, and the slave has been put up for collateral. Um, then he, he's already considered to be the non-Jew slave, and you have to free him. Um, whereas in the case of the field, so now the Gemara is going to point out this, this uh, lack of uh, parallel. In the case of the field, you lent money to the non-Jew. The slave is the, the field is the collateral. The time to pay the loan is up. And the field is still not yours and still exempt from Tumas and Maestros. So now the Gemara is going to say, okay, now we understand what Nimuso means, but why is the law difference between the slave and the field? Okay, so the Gemara says... Um, okay, kashizman azman. So it's a it's a difficulty. In one case, by the slave, when the time is up, it's like he's already owned by the non-Jew. In the field case, when the time is up, it's not yet like it's owned by you. So low kasha, it's not difficult. So in both times, of course, it's a funny that the phrase means the same thing. When it says when the even though you did the nimus, by the case of the slave, it means you set the time and the time has arrived, and therefore it's like the slave has been already taken possession, uh, like the non-Jew has already taken possession of him. By the field, it means you designated the time, but the time has not yet arrived. So therefore, <laughs> so therefore, it's still not your field, which is, of course, like, that's obviously like, why would you use the exact same phrase to describe two critically different, ta- you know, positions in time? So anyway, so that's one answer. So the Gemara says, the Gemara doesn't like the answer anyway. If by the case of the slave, we're talking that the time to collect has arrived, then of course it's like he's already sold to the non-Jew, right? He's put up as the single collateral. The time has arrived. What else? Of course this is the case. So the Gemara says, Ella, I did I did the Lomata's money. Fine. Both the case in the field, the time hasn't arrived, which is better. That is, 
okay, that below kasha, halagufa halape, where the difference is the body or the fruit. Now, what does that mean? So, I, I, I'm just going to give you Tosos' explanation, which is an easier one, okay? Tosos basically says that even though the time has arrived, I, I mean, the time, excuse me, the time has not arrived, so what is happening right now? That the time, you, you can collect it fully when the time arrives, but the time hasn't arrived yet. So, where is the field? The field is, well, the field has never moved. The field is where the field is. The, no, the Jew is on the non-Jew's field. He's getting the fruit. But you don't say that the field is in the possession of the Jew. Right? You don't like take the field and pick it up and bring it home. Right? That's the thing about karka. It never moves. So even though the Jew is on it, we say the Jew is only getting the fruit. The field still is owned by the non-Jew. The time to pay the loan hasn't arrived. It's still the non-Jew's land. But by the case of the slave, where is the slave? Right? When you put the slave up as collateral before the time has arrived, where is he? So he actually, Tosu says, is in the non-Jew's house already. So since he's already in the non-Jew's house, he's the non-Jew has taken possession not only of the fruit, like in the field you take possession of the fruit, he's taken possession of the body of the slave. The slave is in his house, even though, we, even though technically he doesn't own him yet, because the time has not yet arrived, but he's holding the collateral, so that case already you have to free him, because already he is being forced, right, already he's being, he's being uh, forced to, to, to violate halacha, violate mitzvot, he's in the non-Jew's house, he's working on Shabbos, he's eating non-kosher, right? So that's the difference. In both cases, you don't, the time hasn't arrived, but in the case of the slave, once he's been taken into the non-Jew's house, he has to be freed. When you free okay? him, when you yes. free him, and this is still obvious, he remains obligated in those mitzvot, and he's no longer the slave of the faith. Yeah, but the funny thing is that when you free him, um, um, uh, I mean, in a way, he's like fully Jewish and still That's he's being forced. But before. the slave, but the pagan doesn't recognize the freedom. Right. 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 legislating for Gentiles. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it is an interesting point, right? Because, you know, Tosa says you can't have freedom and then sold him because then the sale wouldn't have gone through. What Tosa writes, when this Ono is written to take effect later, of course, what you legally could do is you could sell him and the non-Jew only owns him Lamasi Yadayim and after you sell him and he goes to the non-Jew you wait a week and then you free him and then you know and then according to Halacha right then now he no longer can be possessed by the non-Jew but uh, you know of course it's a little yeah. devious to do from the perspective of the buyer there yes if an, if an adult can't own a slave why can he own the land in Israel? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I don't know what to say. I mean, I don't know why they can't own slaves either, Lugufo. There is a debate whether non-Jew can own land in Eretz Yisrael to change the Talach Tumas and Meisr status. This assumes the position that he can. But you are right that it's an interesting like lack of parallel there. Okay, the Ebay saying if you want, he says you could say So the question you asked that it was again I'm going to read this according to Tosfos the question that you asked was that if the time has already come to collect then, is, um, then isn't it obvious that the uh, that the uh, that the slave would go free that, that, me, that the slave would be considered like sold so it says no it's not so obvious this would be the flip case one case is he's being held by the non-Jew but the time hasn't arrived 
In that case, since he's in the non-Jews' possession, it's like he's been sold and you have to free him. The flip case is that we're saying the Zman has come. Here's the case that's not obvious. He's in your possession. The Zman has come, but the non-Jew has not yet taken possession of him. So the loan can be collected now, but he's not yet being, he hasn't yet been taken by the non-Jew. And that also would be a case where we're saying, well, once the time has come to pay and the non-Jew's going to come to collect him, it's like he's already been sold. Okay, so what is considered to be the moment of sale? If it's not a sale, if it's collecting of a loan, either when he's been taken and physically moved to the non-Jew's home, that's not, he doesn't own him yet, but then already he's being violating mitzvot, and that obligates you to free him, or when the time has come for him to be collected, even if he's in your home. Those are the two answers of the Gemara. But again, the real question is, like, when are you freeing him? Now? Or are you freeing him conditionally if he gets away? You know, it's a, do you have an obligation? What we're really going to see coming up is, and th- which is sort of missing from this and explains this, is you have an obligation to buy him back and to free him. So it's presumed that you, not even if technically you might be able to free him and it would work when he's in the non-Jew's possession, you obviously can't do that. Like, no non-Jews would buy slaves from you. Maybe that would be a good thing. <laughs> if, we, if we forced you to undermine your own sale, but nobody is going to do that, right, or whatever, and obviously it would be a very devious thing, so we're not saying that. We're saying that you, you free him either when he escapes, or, as we're going to find out, the key part that's missing to understand how this works is you have an obligation to buy him back and to redeem him and then to free him. Like, good luck getting people to do that, but that at least is the piece that's missing from this conversation. The okay. piece is setting him up for freedom on the condition that he has to run away from the person to whom he's Right. <laughs> right. Well, okay. Tanu Rabbanan. So now we're going to look at a couple of other scenarios of what constitutes sale or not. Gva'o b'chovo. Let's say the non-Jew, you did not put the slave up as, slave up as collateral. The non-Jew just chose to collect him. You know, he could have collect, taken it from anything. Or this sikrikon, which is like some type of a strong man, basically forced you to sell him your slave. So then you did, you did nothing wrong. You were forced. And therefore the slave is not, does not go free. And you don't have to buy him back. Um, so the says, Ubuchovo lo, is that not is that true that if he's collected as, as a debt, that's not considered a sale? The non-Jew, uh, the, 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 the king basically has seized some of your property from your threshing floor in taxes or whatever. If it was seized for payment of taxes, when you take Tumas and Maestros, you have to include that grain that was seized in the amount that you're tithing. Because, you know, it was your grain, you benefited from it, it was paid to the non-Jew, it's like you sold it. If you sell your grain to a non-Jew before you take Tumas and Maestros, you still have to take Tumas and Maestros on that grain. Right, because that was in your possession, and you you benefited from it by selling it to the non-Jew. So the way you figure out the ties includes that grain. All right. So if so, if it, if it was taken for taxes and money you owed, you have to take tumas and maizus on it. Imba on perot, but if it's on perot, which basically says that uh, you know you were just it was just seized with you know you, you were it was just seized in, uh, unjustly, then patori lasa. You don't have to take tumas and maizus from it. It's like it burned up. Right. It's never like it was yours, like it was destroyed, it was taken not in a just payment of a debt. Okay? Anyway, but you see that when money is seized in a debt, it's considered, you know, like a sale. So the mother says, no, it's not a good comparison. The mother says, Shani has him to come and there, because you, Mishashile, is a 
phrase that the Gemara uses to say like you received actual benefit you benefited from the fact that the grain was used to pay the non to pay the king for your debt right so that was now your debt is paid so since you got benefit from it it's your wealth and therefore you know you, you know you have to take Trimus and Maestros on it alright whereas in this case it's still the, but, but in this case by the slave even if you got moni- you, you monetary benefit from the fact that the slave was seized to pay a debt you didn't choose to give the slave you could have give, you would have liked to have given other property you're not the reason you know you're not the one who made a choice that the slave is now going to be in the hands of a non-Jew and therefore even though you know it was your property that was used to pay your debt you still do not have to free him it was not your choice okay so now the Gemara says like this Tashma coming here Tamaraf, Hamoche Avdo Lefarhang, go figure out that, all these interesting words, Sikrikon, Anpirot, Farhang, all these technical terms, which, you know, we really, whatever, we're just guessing at what they mean. Anyway, Sirashi says again, it means some type of a, also of a strong, of a strong man, somebody who basically is, uh, you know, mafioso, who's uh, forcing you to sell their field. Antosa says that what it means is, um, um, uh, well, let me see. Let's see a Persian word. Right. Tosa says it means basically somebody that forces you to sell them your slave, but, but pays you for it in the process. Okay? So some type of a person who's forcing you to sell your slave. Hamocha Abdo, if Charlie were here, he would tell us what the uh, Steinzelt says, the, the actual Greek word is. Okay. Blackmailer. Blackmailer. Alright. Anyway, Lefarhang, So he forced you to sell him your slave, he goes free. So there, okay, I don't understand. He forced you. You didn't choose. Why is it that you, why is it that considered a sale? Why do you have to free him now? Buy him back and free him. So the Gemara says, um, so, there you could have basically, um, you know, appeased the person. You could have convinced him to buy some other property, take it some other property instead. You could have paid him off not to go, not, not to force you to sell him your slave. You had some options. So whatever the case is, we don't know the case, but it's assumed that you had options and therefore you are, to, you are seen as at fault. Okay, Gufa. Amarav. Hamoke Avdo Lufarhang Govi Kochavim Yatzel Chayrut. So now we're going to basically just repeat what we said. Here's the original statement. My Havilei Lemevat. And now rather than asking it as a question on this idea of seizing a debt, we're just saying, Stam, why is this just that you have to free him? What did you do? What did you do wrong? So the Gemara says, Havilei Lufayis Volopiyes. No, you had an option. You could have appeased him. All right. So when you're willingly choosing or when you could have avoided the situation, then you're seen as, as fault and have to correct it. If it's completely out of your control, you do not. By Rabbi Yirmiya, Rabbi Yirmiya asked, Let's say you sold him to the non-Jew only for 30 days, okay? And he'll come back to you after 30 days. So for those 30 days, he's forced to violate Shabbos and eat tray for whatever, but it's not a permanent sale. Are you forced in that case, when you get him back after 30 days, are, you now, are we now going to force you to free him? That's a really good question, right? So Tashma coming here, So the Gemara somehow assumes that when this Farhang situation, he forces you to sell him your slave, eventually, after he's done with him, he'll sell him back to you. That, it assumes that's the case. So the man says, no. That would be a case where he's not coming back. So we can't prove anything from that. Okay? So we don't know what the, we don't, we don't know what the answer to that is, the 30-day sale. Now, let's say you sell him to the non-Jew, but in the, in the condition that he does not get worked. That, is, that he doesn't make him work. Now, why would somebody buy a slave if he can't make him work? Any ideas? Right, so Rashi says, because you want him to 
mate with your slave woman and make little slave babies. Okay, so therefore, so you're basically hiring him out as a stud is basically what it is, you know? So therefore, so in that case, if he's not going to be forced to work, well, that's what they call it when they sell these horses, right? So That's a horse. All right, fine. Anyway, uh, well, that's how they're treating these slaves. Anyway, um, so, um, so anyway, so maybe you would say, well, he's not being forced to work on Shabbos or something, so maybe it's not a problem. Okay, I've been throwing in the kosher's idea. The Gemara talks about Shabbos. I mean, maybe the Gemara assumes that the slave could choose what to eat or not eat, you know, but I'm doubtful. Like, if the, your master's providing your food and, you know, you're going to wind up eating whatever they feed you. What? What did you say? Okay, exactly. Exactly. Uh, I'm a vegetarian. I'll just take the salad. Right. Anyway, so anyway, so what's the story if he doesn't have to work? Um, or if you explicitly can make a condition that he respects the slave's religious freedom and lets him perform, do the mitzvot, okay? Or you say, on the condition that he gives them off on Shabbos. So you, if you put all of this in the contract, does that now say, okay, so now it's not so bad. You don't have, we, we don't find you, don't force you to buy him back and to free him. So the Gemara says, so what's the halacha? So, how about to a Gertoshav, somebody who's dwelling in the land of Israel, keeps the Sheva Mitzvah but presumably is also like respectful of Jewish observance, and therefore, even though he doesn't keep Shabbos, you know, might be might respect the slaves' religious freedom. Or what about if it's a Yisrael Mumar, which is like the flip case? Technically, you sold him to a Jew, but in practice, this Jew is completely non-observant. So, is it tech, is it the contextual realities of whether he'll be able to keep Shabbos? This, or is it the formal question Jew versus non-Jew we don't care about the contextual realities okay so he says Yomahu Lukuti Mahu how about a Samaritan who is has this questionable Jewish status some form of mitzvos but not exactly our form of mitzvos very fascinating questions right so the Gemara says Mahu Pashu Miyachada at least one of these we can resolve because we have a, a bright presumably your teaching Ger Toshav so Ger Toshav is like a non-Jew he is not, not a Jew and the fact that he is some, keeps some mitzvot is not enough for, for our purposes how about the flip case somebody who technically is a Jew but is not observant or not our form of observance okay the case of the kuti that remain, that's a debate okay and all these other cases we don't know and this is also a great case where the, where the question is how much when we make certain takanot or laws in general do we look at just formal parameters like I can't assess things case by case uh, we're going to have a rule Jew versus non-Jew but, but, you know if I have to assess every single case case by case you're never going to figure out any. you know you're never going to get anything done okay so we always go by formal parameters or do we say no some cases we're willing to consider different because of their circumstances so maybe somebody who's technically Jewish but not observant should be like a non-Jew and maybe a, a non-Jew who, who can explicitly gives him the right for religious freedom and agrees to serve him kashrus and give him off on Shabbos maybe that case you should be exempt from having to free him so we don't know the Answer. Okay. Let's say you did not sell him. Let's say he basically went ahead and he ran away from you. Maybe you were mistreating him. And he basically joined up with some invading troops and army or whatever it was. And, uh, and now there's no way you're going to get your slave back. Okay? And you, but you didn't sell him. That's it. Your slave is lost to you. Totally not your choice. So here's the question. If you have a way to not get him back, but he'll at least 
go to the you know to the uh, sort of the sergeant there or the you know of the army and say look you know your officers took my slave I understand I'm not getting him back or whatever can I at least get some compensation for him so can if there's a way for you can get compensation after he's taken and that's a done deal is that allowed or will that make it be defined as now like you sold him right good question right? you just want to get some money you didn't want to sell him but now it's already done can you at least get some money okay what because that's just a reality that was a reality that they, they they're not giving you your slave back but if you go but they might you might be able to get them to agree to give you some money because they took your slave exactly okay are you allowed to do that or now is that like you've now sold your slave and now maybe you have to now work to buy him back and to free him and who knows what Okay, so is that allowed? So Amalei Rebbe Yirmiel Rebbe Zreika Pruk Pruk Ayim B'Mechiltacha. Go inspect your sort of collections of teachings, and because uh, because this question was asked from Rebbe Ami, and he's going to want to know, he's going to want to get our advice in terms of what the halacha is. It's an interesting word, right? If people might hear there the word Mechilta. Mechilta is the Tanaitic collection of uh, the collection of Tanaitic uh, halachic discussions on Mesechet Shemot. I'm Mesechet. <laughs> We'll talk about a Freudian stuff. On Sefer Shemot. Okay. Mechilta, like, you know, means, means like a measure, to take a measure to, or to make, or to collect, to weigh. So if you think about it, the Tanitic collections on the various form of the Torah have these very creative names, right? One is called Sifra, which means book, is on Vayikra. The one on Bamidbar and Dvarim is called Sifrei, which means books. And the one on Shemot is called Mechilta, which means collection. Okay, so anyway, he said to him go look at your collections of teachings um, he's going to want our advice um, Rebbe Ami Nafik Daks Askach he went he inspected and he found the following thing the time we taught in the Brysa does it sound um, like it was written down uh, maybe I don't know could, uh, could also be an oral collection I mean the Mechilta also I don't know it's a good point I mean if you think about it right you know the fact that actually as just as we were saying it was called Sifra and Sifrei Sefer right I mean what's his name Na'er Shlomo Na'er wrote this brilliant article about how it started from the most obscure point about how there's all these different ways of dividing the Sifra you know and like you know three different ways of dividing it none of them make sense they all contradict one another it was the most boring article ever like he goes all he measures the exact thing anyway but the conclusion was mind boggling the conclusion was he figured out the only way these divisions make sense or the only thing that they have in common is that they're all roughly the same size the way they're divided and he said and the size they are fits exactly to this sort of standard size that a scroll would be in like in the ancient world he is, and says think about a cassette tape Right? Remember cassette tapes? He says, you didn't want them too short because then you need a million cassette tapes. You don't want too long because then you have to, you know, so cassette tapes would be like 60 to 90 minutes, right? So he says, the same with scrolls. You had a scroll. You didn't want them too short. You didn't want them too long. There was a fixed size for scrolls. And the division of the Sifra fits exactly that size. And he uses this as evidence that the Sifra was one of the first things in Torah Shabbat that was written down. Uh, so it was like a brilliant conclusion. I don't know. I can find it for you. Anyway, but it's interesting because the name of it is Sifra. <laughs> right, it's safe there. We're all influenced by the stuff was in all memories. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, okay. What's the name of the person? Uh, I think Shlomo Na'eh. Okay, I can look for a sign for you. Okay. Okay, so talk about the most brilliant conclusion from the most technical thing. Anyway, so it says like this. It says, Nafitak the Ashach, he went to investigate and he found the time we turned a brace up. 
Hamocher based on Lobi Kochavim is somebody sells his house to a non-Jew, which you're not supposed to do because you're not supposed to sell land in Israel to non-Jews. Either because of a Pazak Losa Chanein, you shouldn't give him Chania Bekarka, which uh, plays a lot into pol- political issues nowadays, political religious issues, but also part of a more general rabbinic, that's like seen as a Doraita, but a more general rabbinic takanot about, you know, maintaining Jewish presence and property in the land of Israel. So if you went ahead and you sold your land to a non-Jew, the Mava Surim, the money, the proceeds of the sale is forbidden. It's also behana. The Ovishokhim Shanaspe told Shay Israel, but if a non Jew forced you to sell your house, the Aimbalav forced you took your house, forcefully seized your house. The Aimbalav Yahullah, and there's no way you're gonna get your house back. In that case it's already a done deal. Mutualitama you can take the money. And once you do that, you can even get it written down in the, you know, get it written down in a document in their secular courts to make it legitimate. So at least you can, like, if the guy's promising you the money, you get him to write the amount he owed, whatever. You get it all done, so you know you'll get your money for it. Um, even though that, fi- in a way, finalizes the sale, but nevertheless, you're allowed to do that. Because ultimately, at least you're salvaging your money from them. You've lost the house. You might as well salvage your money if you can get them to pay money. Okay, so you see, it's okay. It's okay. It doesn't. It's considered like you sold a house once it's already a done deal and it won't be considered like you sold a slave once it's already a done deal so it should be allowed to take the money so the Gemara says no maybe not the deal honey bias to give the low cellular below bias maybe that by a house a house we say allowing you to collect the money after the fact won't become a slippery slope to people selling the ha- selling the house you know from the outset okay why because you know people can't live without a house we're not so afraid that people are going to regularly sell their homes all right it's very you know it's rare that people sell their homes so therefore we're not afraid of a slippery slope if we in this case if we let you com- collect the money after the fact but slaves people can deal without a slave so if we let you co- collect the money after the fact that might lead to people you know act uh, you know selling their slaves. Okay, I'll see these vune. Okay, oh well, so, or maybe not. So maybe you can compare it to a slave, maybe you can't. So we don't know whether this case of the house that you can collect the money after the fact is good enough basis for the slave. Even though you could raise this theoretical question, nevertheless, Sholech Rebiami, presumably they gave this, uh, they taught, the, the, you know, they, gave, they found this source, Rebiami, and there was this question whether it was applicable or not, but he felt it was, he felt it was a good enough support. And therefore, he sent the following response to those who asked him the question. Minini Ami Bar Nasan, from me, Ami, the son of Nasan, Torah Yotzal, Chol Yisrael, the following teaching goes out to all of Israel, like a, a very formal proclamation. You're allowed to collect the money, and you can even get the sale written down in a court. Because you're just saving your money after the fact. It's a little ironic, right? Because talking about like after, like he's making this. I, Rabbi Ami, am issuing the following proclamation. He got his students to find him the appropriate text. Basically, the teaching was already taught in the appropriate text. Okay, but he was the one that decided that it was relevant that you not to make a possible distinction that could be made. Okay, so anyway, so there we go. I'm Rabbi Yosho Ben Levi. Hamoge Avdo. 
Now we finally figure out what good this idea of freeing him does if he's in the hands of the non-Jew is that you actually force the guy up to a hundred times the value of the slave to buy the slave back. So like it's really, again, whether they actually worked in practice, if they ever were able to really make people do this, then you, like that could suggest like, nobody would ever sell their slave, right? So I don't, if this was ever actually been able, successfully ever done, but that's at least the halakha. You're forced to buy him back. So the Gemara says, um, Davgo lo Davka. When we say a hundred times, are we being like serious or are we exaggerating? Okay? So Tashma coming here. Damare Shaki, Shamoka de Himo, Gasalov de Kochavim, Kotinosor, Esarbetameha. If you sell a, also you're not supposed to sell animal to non Jews, and this obviously shows you, you know, we could say it has something to do with mitzvot, because the Gemara in Avodazara says that's to do with the fact it won't be, it'll only be a rental, not a final sale, and they he'll use the animal on Shabbos. But what it also has to do is this issue I mentioned to you, which is, you know, maintaining Jewish presence in the land of Israel and these sort of central things about like land and animals and, and slaves to what it means to have a presence in the land you didn't want to get into the hands of the non-Jews so well yes yeah 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 so anyway so it says look if here it says 100 and here it says 10 presumably we're not exaggerating we use different numbers because presumably right there are you know there are there, you know um, uh, oh no I'm sorry Rashi understands excuse me Rashi understands the opposite that if it's only 10 for for the animal, so clear, we're assuming it would be the same for slaves, so we're assuming the number of a hundred is Lav Daska. So the Gemara says, because even for an animal, you buy, for an animal, you buy back for ten times. So No, give me a break. To the slave, what you did to the slave is a lot worse. The slave, every single day, he's being forced to violate halacha. So maybe by a slave, we do say a hundred. The animal only ten, but a slave a hundred times. Okay, the Ika the army Yamar Rabbi Yishev Ben Levi. Some say Rabbi Yishev Ben Levi said, "Hamok Avdolov Tikhovim Kontinus Oda Sarb Damas." You make him pay ten times to get him back. Dafko Lo Dafko. And we want to know is that number Dafko or not? Ten times to buy back the slave. Tashma. And now we have uh, the, the flip. The whole thing is mirror image. The Amar Eshlakish Hamok Behem Gazlo Tikhovim Kontinus Oda Neya Bedameha. Okay, that you make somebody pay a hundred times for the animal. Now, what's the logic in that? Right. So we assume that they've got to be the same. So one of them is Lo Dafko. Is there a way to explain the logic why the slave is only ten times and the animal is a hundred times people probably sell animals much more frequently that might than be human that might be so that's what the Gemara says um, no Shani Evadulo Hajale no 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 the slave it's only ten times because the slave you have to free you don't get the slave back the animal is a hundred times because you get the animal back so the Gemara says one minute uh, if, if I'm getting the animal back I'm only getting one value one, you, know, the, you know one times the value of the animal better than in the slave case why because I got that one you know the animal back so I have to do 90 times more <laughs> to buy to buy it back you know, uh, so he says so the animal why are we making you redeem him for more than 10 times the value because you're going to get to keep the animal when you redeem him so they can say so fine so redeem him instead of 10 times pay up to 11 times why do you have to pay up to 100 times so the way Rashi sort of says it very nicely Rashi says um, like woe to me that I'm getting my animal back and because of that I have to pay now 100 hundred times to get him back, okay? So the Gemara says, okay, so that can't be the difference between ten and a hundred. Ella, Eved, Nilsud Lo Shicha. This is, here you go, Dov, you, 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 you could have written this. A slave is very rare. So they didn't have to make such a heavy fine. So they did ten times. An animal, they could be a hundred times. Again, whether they were, which was more common, whether they actually successfully managed, you know, got people to do this, I don't know. Okay. Right, yeah. Right. You're being facetious. Rabbi Yirmiyam, Rabbi Asi. 
You sold your slave, and Reuben sold his slave, and then he died. Do his sons, are they obligated to buy the slave back? And even at ten times the value? Or is this just a fine that we put at the person that transgressed? On the one hand, you would focus on the sinner, you know, on the, on the transgression that this person did by selling, and it's not fair to make his kids pay. On the other hand, there's a reality that the slave is still being forced to violate every single day. So do we force the kids to do it or not? Okay? In Dim Salomar, now, we have other cases like this where we impose fines and we want to know if they apply to the kids. So, for example, the case was Tsaram Ozen Bechor Umate. What happens if you, if you make a wound in the ear of a firstborn animal? A Kohen, you give him your firstborn animal, he brings it as a korban, but it's a big schwep to go to Yerushalayim. Well, if the korban, ha- if the, if the Bechor has a mum, a blemish, he can eat it without bringing it as a korban. He doesn't even have to redeem it. It's interesting halacha about a Bechor. So, Kohanim had a real Yetzirah to accidentally cut the ear of the Bechor and therefore they wouldn't have to bring it to Yerushalayim. Okay, but they violated Torah prohibition about Komum lo Yibo. So therefore, what Chazal said is if you do that, if a Kohen does that, then he is not allowed to eat from the animal. Let's say the Kohen did it and he died. Can his kids eat from the Bechor? Do we impl- impose the fine on the kids as well? If you say that they did find the kids, would the slave be the same? Maybe not. Maybe there they find the kids because it was a biblical violation to impose a wound. Which is interesting because if you think about it, it's rabbinic in the sense that there's a rabbinic law, don't sell your slaves to a non-Jew. But whatever happened to, for example, the halacha about right? I mean, you're putting him, you're being machshil him in Averas. You know, I don't know, what, what, know why that's not a considered a biblical violation. I mean, you're putting him in a scenario where he's going to be forced to violate. Anyway, the Yim Salomar. So therefore, we can't prove it. Maybe by the case of Bechor, you find the kids because that was a clear biblical violation. Here, maybe not. Let's look at the other side of it. Here's another scenario. If somebody waited around to get some job done for Cholam Moed, and then Cholam Moed came and said, oh, if I don't take care of it now, it's going to be a Dover Ha'avad, so I have to be able to do it now. Of course, you could have taken care of it a week ago. But since you waited a week, now on Cholam Moed it's a Dover Ha'avad, and now you want, you're going to do it now. So in that case, we basically say that you're not allowed to do it. Okay, and you're not allowed to benefit from it if you did it. Okay, so, um, so in that case, let's so you went ahead and you did it and so somebody went ahead and did it and he's not allowed to benefit from it he has to destroy whatever benefit he gained and then the person dies do we make the kids also not benefit from that labor so if you say in that case we did not impose it to the kids so maybe you could say oh because that was rabbinic so maybe because right doing whatever not, not postponing your work to that time so maybe by the case of the Bechor that's biblical we imposed it on the kids that wouldn't necessarily apply to the slave which is a rabbinic violation oh but here's a case of Cholomoed, which was rabbinic. Maybe we didn't impose it on the kids. Maybe that should indicate that for rabbinic violations, we don't impose the fine on the kids. No, this is worse. That's Mishim Delo Avid Isura. Because you didn't actually, you know, do like a violation that, yeah, in the end of the day, that, you know, you, um, um, you know, you, it, it was a Dover Avadan Cholomoed, right? You, you, you shouldn't have created those circumstances. But when there were those circumstances, it wasn't the same, like, direct violation as selling the slave, okay? And also, selling the slave, the slave is now being forced to violate on a daily basis, okay? So there's, basically, you can't look at these cases is the same. Sometimes we impose a fine on the kids, sometimes not. 
the case of the slave on the one hand is not as severe because it's not a biblical violation on the other hand it is a clear rabbinic violation and clearly the slave is being forced to violate on a daily basis so do we impose the fine on the kids or not so hachamai what would be the story here so do we say he only finds the, the transgressor and he's dead? No, no, no. They said that the money, the slave, or they, or, or they, they imposed the fine on his estate, the ha'isa, and the estate is around. Or you could say they focused on it, right? So which is the way? We taught it. If a field was sort of like, you know, uh, uh, cleaned from the debris, from the uh, branches or whatever, on Shemitah, which is a rabbinic violation, you can plant it after Shvis. We don't we don't fine you for a rabbinic violation. Nitiyavya onidaira if it was um, if it was uh, 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 what's it called the fertilized or you brought a pen of animals in so that they would spend time and poop all over the place and fertilize it. So lotis you cannot do it. Then we fine you and you can't use the field after Shemitah. we rule hetiva umate bno zora. If that if the person actually uh, fertilized it and then he died, we don't impose it on his son. Now, of course, Tosu says, okay, but that's not exactly the same. On the one hand, this is a Doraita. On the other hand, this is not an on... Or maybe fertilizing on Shemitah is only a Durabanan. On the other hand, it's not an ongoing violation, the same way an Evid is an ongoing violation. So it's not exactly clear why the Gemara thinks all of a sudden this is the most comparable case. But nevertheless... Somehow feels that that was analogous enough, not clear why, and we're going to say that here too we will not impose the fine on the son, even though the slave remains in ongoing violation. Okay, now the Gemara just ends with a similar case. We take as a halacha. You basically you took a sheret, a rodent, and you threw it on your friend's truma, and now you made a truma tmea. And now he can't, you know, you can't do anything with it. It's valueless or almost valueless. The thing is, is that it's considered hezekenu nikar. It's a non-visible damage. You can't see the tumor. Okay. So the halacha is that technically you're exempt from laws of damages, but we find you to prevent such actions, and we made you pay as a fine, not as a real, not as a real, not you know, nezek. not nezek. So how about the kids? Okay. They did not make the kids pay. My time a hezekenu nikar lo Hezek, it's not really a Nezek, it's not really in terms of uh, technically you're not liable. And it's only a rabbinic fine. Because it's a fine, right? A fine is not really about compensation. A fine is a form of monetary punishment. So they impose this punishment on you. They did not impose it on the heirs, on the children. Okay, so we'll end with this.